This is The Guardian. Hast du genug von Werbung, die deine Comedy-Podcast-Party zum Absturz bringt? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash comedypodcasts, um keine neuen Folgen mehr zu verpassen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Hello and welcome to Guardian Football Weekly. It's an AFCON special. We haven't had time to do a preview, so consider this the preview just after the tournament has started, which means we get to discuss a number of upsets, zero wins from their opening matches for Egypt, Cameroon, Tunisia, Ghana and Nigeria, with Ghana beaten by Cape Verde and Tunisia losing to Namibia, their first ever AFCON win. Of the favourites, Senegal have started imperiously, while World Cup semi-finalist Morocco might be playing as you listen along to this. We'll discuss whether we'll see more fans in the Côte d'Ivoire than previous tournaments, and whether CAF President Patrick Matsepe is under any pressure to deliver a more successful one than last time out in Cameroon. There's so many other business. Jose sacked Jordan Henderson, leaving Saudi Arabia. Bristol's FA Cup win, and another Football Weekly dream. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today from Pulse Sports uh, in Nigeria, Solis Chukwu, we've spoken to before. Hi, Solis. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Max. Thanks for coming on. Um, uh, writing for The Guardian for AFCON, amongst others, Asasu uh, Obayuana. Um, Asasu, thanks for coming on. Hello, Max. Nice to see yeah, you. Nice to have you. Uh, and Jonathan Wilson, veteran of AFCON, will be going out to cover the knockouts. I mean, veterans suggest you've played in many tournaments. You haven't. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. But you have covered a lot of them. I've come, this will be my 11th, yeah. So. Your 11th? Yeah. Oh, good man. Uh, all right, well, look, uh, for those of you who don't follow AFCON religiously, uh, this tournament, 24 teams, six groups of four in each group. Top two teams go through to the last 16. The four best third-place teams make it to the last 16 as well. Uh, we've almost finished the first round of games. Tom says, why do you think there have been so many shock results um, Joe says, given that the big teams, Senegal and Morocco, are imperfect and a tad defensive, Nigeria, Algeria, Cameroon, all fallible. Cote d'Ivoire, fragile defensively. Um, is AFCON the most open and competitive international competition? Um, the shock results, uh, Asasu, what, what do you put that down to? Um, what are the shock results for you first? So I can... Talk about oh, well, them. <laughs> well, that's a good question. I suppose, I suppose from our point of view, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, we see the sides, like the historically big Africa sides uh, South, uh, that I've mentioned in the intro, I guess, you know, as the ones that we expect to do well every time. And obviously international football changes, doesn't it? But it was a surprise for me to see Tunisia lose to Namibia. And it was certainly a surprise to see uh, Ghana beaten by Cape Verde. Well, uh, the Ghana loss to Cape Verde wasn't a surprise to me at all. Um, as Jonathan would testify, uh, the Black Stars have been in a rather bad shape uh, for a couple of years now. And the signs came to the fore in Cameroon when they crashed out in the first round and lost their very last game to the Comoros which is a comparable side to, to Cape Verde. And uh, they've just basically picked up from their miserable uh, performance in, in Cameroon to continue it here 
in in Abidjan. So uh, for people in Ghana, they're not particularly surprised with the results because they've observed that the team has been in rather poor form. Uh, the team has not been stable in terms of um, managers for the last couple of years. I think between 2021 and now they've had four managers, four. Uh, they had the former Ghana international CK Akuno, uh, then before the AFCON in Cameroon, uh, Ratomir, um, um, sorry, I'm just forgetting his name now, the, the coach that took them to the 2010 World Cup finals in South Africa. Milovan Rajevac? Yes, Milovan Rajevac. Thank you. He came back for a second stint, which was disastrous, and they sacked him as soon as the AFCON was over. And then uh, Otto Addo took over for the World Cup, but as soon as the World Cup was done, he just decided uh, he'd had enough. And now we have Chris Hewton in charge, and this is his first time of him being an international manager. And he is not having a very good time with the Black Stars. There's been so much pressure on him for the period he's been in Ghana. In fact, a lot of people thought that he was going to be sacked before the tournament. So you can imagine the reaction to, to losing to Cape Verde. I mean, one fan almost uh, came to blows with him at the hotel after the game. The, the police had to be called in to, to take him away. So that's the situation with regards to Ghana. Uh, Tunisia, um, they have not had it very well as, uh, in the last couple of years as well. There's been a lot of governance instability at the Federation and it's been showing with the national team as well. But yes, to lose to Namibia that have never won an African Cup of Nations game until now, it's very humiliating. And I'm sure the coach knows that if he doesn't fix things very quickly, he'll be out. Solis, that, that winning goal for Namibia was a was a great moment for them. Yes, it was. I, I had a lot of fun watching Namibia play against Tunisia. I'll be honest, I'm not exactly unbiased here. I'm I'm very biased towards good football. And Tunisia do not have a tradition of providing it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perennially terrible to watch. So watching uh, watching the first half and seeing them sit so deep against Namibia, it was just like I kept praying, let them get what they deserve for this because this this was so unambitious. The second half they sort of came into it more, and but but Namibia showed a lot of fight, showed a lot of heart, and um, crucially the quality that was needed in that moment to deliver that cross, fantastic. Um, and Hotto got his head onto that, and it's a really, really famous win for Namibia. Uh, hopefully they push on from this, but, um, you know, it's a tough group. On paper, Tunisia was the hardest game for them, <laughs> and they've gotten the result there, but, you know, you never know with AFCON. So um, the celebrations in Bindhawk hopefully go on all the way through the tournament no matter what happens. In Cape Verde and Ghana's group, Wilson, Egypt uh, drew 2-2 with Mozambique. And, and Mozambique actually went ahead in this game and Egypt needed a last-minute penalty from Mo Salah. They've lost two of the last three finals and you sort of feel with Egypt, I don't know, is this the last, is this the maybe the penultimate one with Salah at the peak of his powers or maybe even the last one? He'll be 33 next time out. Uh, yeah, probably the penultimate one. I mean... I know they got to the final two years ago, but they, they weren't good two years ago. It was very much, they defended, they scrapped, they spoiled. Salah was massively isolated. In, in, you know, they were really bad to watch in the last one. They sort of scraped their way to the final, largely on mentality because they, you know, they, they, their record is so good and they, they, you know, they do tend to get through. 
so th- this felt like a continuation of that, except without the defensive solidity. And the Carlos Queiroz is, is gone, but his his legacy remains. I think there is a sense that, that Salah's... I know Egyptian fans tend to blame Salah for this. That he's never really done it for Egypt. But I just think the way the team's set up is so boring and it's so reliant on him that he, it be, he becomes quite easy to, to defend against. Who's more boring, Egypt or Tunisia? Sarsi? Oh, Tunisia, definitely, but carry on. No contest, then. No contest. <laughs> Egypt, of all the countries in the North African region, is the one country that have a culture of being able to win an African Cup of Nations anywhere on the continent you play, north, west, east or south. Uh, so... For me, I'm never surprised when Egypt starts uh, badly, uh, but I know that they have a, a, a level of professionalism that enables them to dig in and get the results when they need to get the results. I mean, for me, the most interesting thing is to see whether their head coach, Rui Vitoria, is going to justify his salary. Because Rui Vitoria, if he's not the best paid coach in African football at the moment, he's definitely among the top two or three because he's on a salary of 200,000 US dollars a month, which gives him a salary of 2.4 million dollars a year. Uh, compare that to the coach of Nigeria, who is getting only 50,000. So if he doesn't deliver a good result for the Pharaohs at this WAFCON, there will be a lot of questions for him to answer. I mean, I was in in Egypt for five weeks just before the tournament and I watched Egypt play against Djibouti in their World Cup qualifier in Cairo where they gave Djibouti a 6-0 trouncing. But I mean, that's Djibouti and you would expect that they should dominate a game against a less inferior opponent. But here at the AFCON, it's not so easy and they will really have to step up. Mozambique has given them the warning that... uh, you know, they're not going to be any easy pies for offering here. You mentioned Nigeria there. Solis, you're in Lagos. Uh, a one-all draw with Equatorial Guinea. How's that gone down? Oh, people are massively disappointed. Uh, everyone is up in arms. It's it's important to note that Nigeria, in spite of all their riches, especially in attack, they went to this tournament um, under a massive cloud of pessimism back home. Um, people aren't convinced by the work that uh, the coach of Becerra is doing. So everyone was sort of hoping for a bit more fluidity now that, you know, you've had the team in a tournament setting, you know, a large block of training to get the team ready. But still, what we got for the most part was um, Nigeria created a lot of chances. And that's really the thing. The the squad has the quality to overcome some of the uh, tactical deficiencies, you know, within it. But... In terms of how the team actually plays, how they set up to create chances, there's very little repeatability to it. And so because of that, even though Nigeria created a whole host of chances and really could have won on another day, people are a lot more down on on the team after that result. But personally, I think Nigeria probably will be fine. Um, Equatorial Guinea no pushovers, they got to the last um the last eight the last time around. So this is not by any means a an easy team to dispatch. Uh, so I just think that if Nigeria continue in this game, they can create problems for pretty much anyone. It really will come down to how clinical they are and, of course, how much they can trouble the more established sides when they, if they progress deeper in the tournament. Solis, I have to say that you're, you're, you're very optimistic <laughs> because... 
for them for them to 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 get to the second round, <laughs> they have to beat. I mean, if they want to be sure of going to the second round, they need to beat Cote d'Ivoire on Thursday. They, because if if they get another draw against Cote d'Ivoire, it's going to leave things really on the edge. I just think the fact that you know with the the format of the tournament, the fact that third place teams can go through. I think that gives a lot of leeway, to be honest. Yeah, but Nigeria is not a team that should be waiting for, uh, you know, whether they're going to get a, a third place. Come on. I mean, you, they, they're supposed to qualify automatically. I, ideally, ideally, it shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. But stranger things have happened. This is tournament football. I mean, um, I think back to Euro 2016 and Portugal just going all the way to win the tournament and they just drew their way through the competition, basically. So it's tournament football. Anything can happen. As as for what's ideal, yeah, Nigeria really should be doing a lot better than they're doing. They should be winning the group, probably. I mean, Cote d'Ivoire, really good side. They're the hosts. But, you know, their game against Guinea-Bissau, there were a couple of inefficiencies in terms of how they play. So ideally, Nigeria should be coming out of this group pretty nervously. But the reality... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this does not always line up with expectation. Yeah, but what 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 I'm what I'm really interested to see with Nigeria is how they will react when they are under real pressure, because Equatorial Guinea is not a top team, you know, in in the continent. So in terms of the pressure tactically, it wasn't so much. But when they're going to be playing against you know higher quality sides, that's when they're going to have to show whether they have the the invention, the fluidity to actually dig out a result. And that's why I'm really keen to see how they, they do against Cote d'Ivoire because if they're able to step up in that game, then maybe there, there's hope. As somebody pointed out to me, I mean, when I covered the World Cup uh, in France in 98, France won the World Cup without having a top strike. I mean, Stéphane Grivache was supposed to be their key man, but he didn't deliver. So they had to find a way of winning the World Cup Round him. So I guess, yes, the lack of balance for Nigeria is definitely a problem because the midfield doesn't have the, the creativity of an Okocha. It doesn't have the defensive uh, maturity of a Sunday Olisa there. But uh, I guess the, the, if you have lemons, you have to make lemonade. So let's see what uh, Jose Becerro <laughs> does with what he's got. I mean, funnily enough, Wait, sorry, funnily I'm, enough I'm, Max, I just want to say one more thing before you... You you move me on. Uh, you say you say what you say one more thing. I, I, it may be two, but carry on. At the end of the press conference, Jose Pesero said that uh, sometimes in football, God gives and God takes, and that he hopes that God will. Oh, oh, he's a clergyman. That, that God nice. will give him something on the match day on Thursday. He, he better because if he if God doesn't give him anything, I'm sure he's going to be hearing a lot from. From people in Nigeria. I'm really enjoying Wilson struggling to get a word in edgeways. It's an absolute <laughs> joy. Uh, yeah, Wilson. Wait, I, I, I'm slightly nervous to do this. I, I was going to ask a question. Can somebody explain <laughs> Jose Pesero to, or Jose Pesero to me? Because he was floating around two years ago in the background and Augusto Negraven was, was sort of a caretaker coach or something because they hadn't sorted out Pesero's contract. And Pesero's a, a, a joker, right? He's, he took sporting to the final of the UEFA Cup in 2005. And since then, he's had 13 jobs, hasn't lasted more than 50 games in any of them. And this, this is such a major question. This is genuinely true. I was in, I was in Stamford in, in Lincolnshire, I think it is, uh, this beautiful old Georgian town. And I got off the train, this is sort of 18 months ago, and somebody recognised me and comes up to me and says, 
can you explain to me what's going on with Joseph Passero? <laughs> and my only answer was, oh, it'll be some mad scheme of Amity Pinnock. Is, is, is that all it is? Or what, what's going on with Passero? And- oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Look, you know, if you if I go back to December twenty one, can I just check? Can, can I just can I just check this last week? When you say when you start a sentence, when you start a sentence with "Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy," does that mean a short or a long? I'm I'm expecting a long story. It's now. Long, it's, long. Long. it's definitely long. I mean, my reaction is just a reflection of how ridiculous the situation is. Look, when when uh, Nigeria sacked Gernot Raw in December 21, before the AFCON in Cameroon. I told, I mean, I have to say that maybe because of the length of time I've spent covering football and the kind of things I've done in football, I, I, I have access, working privileges with a lot of people at the Nigerian Football Federation. And I told these guys, I said, listen, you can't sack a head coach with less than a month to an AFCON and this coach has been with you for five years. It's, it's ridiculous. He has already met all the performance milestones in terms of quali- the tournament qualification you've given him. Let him go to the AFCON. You signed the contract with him to say, if you didn't win the AFCON in Cameroon, we can fire you. And he signed the contract, but they didn't even let him go to the AFCON in Cameroon. So because of that, they had to pay him every penny they owed on his contract to the end of the contract, which they wouldn't have had to do if he had gone to the AFCON in Cameroon and failed. And then they brought this guy, uh, Jose Pesero. They said, oh, uh, we talked to Jose Mourinho about him. He gave us very good vibes about him. Well, you're supposed to do your homework and know the career of this man, what he has achieved and what his competencies are. Telling us that you had a word with Jose Mourinho about him, I mean, that's just a joke. And the, the, the way he has managed the team shows that he is a joke. And I asked members of the Nigerian Football Federation when his initial contract ran out in June, why did you renew the contract? It is clear that he's not competent. I mean, can you imagine that the president of the Nigerian Football Federation said that they were going to organise a social media poll to hear from Nigerians whether they should sack the man or not. If you're a president of a federation, you're supposed to know, or you're supposed to lead a federation, you're supposed to have some, some, either you have the technical competence yourself, or you are surrounded by advisors who do have those competencies to tell you whether your head coach is good or not. But lo and behold, they decided to keep him on. So here we are, it's, uh, it's the theater of the absurd. Yes, I just Osasu has pretty much covered everything, but I mean, every, literally everything. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes always makes me laugh when I think about it. Someone, someone said, someone said on social media very memorably that if Nigeria is explained to you and you understand it, then it wasn't explained properly. <laughs> so this, this is this is the greatest indication of that. This was a serious situation. Can I ask you, Wilson, quickly before we end part one, Ivory Coast, how they're, they beat Guinea-Bissau 2-0, but where, where are they at, do you think? I mean, I think when, when Alaire is there, we'll, we'll see more what, what they're like. Um, they, they won that game very easily. The, the game was almost ruined by the fact they scored after four minutes and any pressure they might have felt was gone. They were obviously going to win Guinea-Bissau, you know, and, and not a great side. They, got, you know, they lost 6-2 to Mali just before the tournament. 
Um, so the early goal sort of decided the game almost before it had been played. And then it was just a, you know, a case of sort of running through it. They're clearly not as strong as the, you know, the, the golden side of 10 years ago, but they're at home. They are decent. They, they, they should be sort of semi-finals minimum. And the only way that wasn't going to happen, I think, was if they had a nervous start, but you know, a totally competent 2-0 winner of Guinea-Bissau. They essentially now have two games to, to just make sure they finish top of the group and, and make sure that they, you know, they, they keep in the right stadium and, and, and keep on the, the easy side of the draw. All right, that'll do for part one. Part two will begin with uh, Cameroon's draw with Guinea. Hast du genug von Werbung, die deine Comedy-Podcast-Party zum Absturz bringt? Gute Nachrichten. Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash comedypodcasts, um keine neuen Folgen mehr zu verpassen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. As a Cameroon drew one all with, with Guinea. Guinea went one nil up, then went down to 10 men. And I guess Solis did well to hold on after that, do you think? Yeah, yeah, they, you could you could say that. Um, I, I was distinctly unimpressed with Cameroon. Um, the approach in that game was basically to sling a lot of crosses into the box, which was very rudimentary. There have been a lot of doubts as to the competence of the song on the bench. And um, that game did very little to allay those doubts and those fears. Obviously, there's this whole sideshow with um, Andre Onana and whether he plays the situation with Manchester mm-hmm. United. So that has, in a way, sort of distracted people from the reality of that opening game, which is that when it was 11 v 11, Guinea were comfortably the better side, were causing Cameroon all sorts of problems. And, you know, the red card really just took all of the air out of that game and allowed Cameroon to dictate the game, even though they did a very poor job of that. You know, the approach was very, very basic. And um, let's let's see what they do going forward. But it's it's making it sort of difficult to argue the case for Song. Um, you know, when, especially when you look into how he was appointed and the fact that he has uh, some letter on his shoulder pretty much every hour of the day whispering ideas and interfering in how the team is constructed. What did you make of that Anana situation, Asasu? Um, I have a lot of sympathy for him, I have to tell you, because, uh, I mean, he had a, a brilliant uh, season at Inter, not at the beginning, though, when he was in his last season with Inter, but towards the end and with the Champions League run. I mean, I think he's an incredibly good goalkeeper. But, you know, as they say, even though class is permanent, form is temporary. And his form at Manchester United has not been good. But I have to say that he's not being helped by the team he's playing with as well, because the team is generally poor. So I think for him, the most important thing is to be mentally strong and to deal with the challenges he's having at the moment and to have the belief in himself that he's still the goalkeeper that I have known him to be and many people know him to be. I mean, with regards to the travel uh, to Abidjan for the tournament, you see, my position is very simple. If you have uh, a tournament, the AFCON on the calendar, FIFA need to be extremely strict with the clubs and say, listen, The tournament starts on day X. We don't care what games you have by day Y or Z. You've got to release the player. 
And it's not about whether the player agrees or not. It is just simply the rule. And if you don't let the player go and you use the player, any points in your league that you win as a result of him being in the team are nullified. It's simple. Okay, and, if you, and, it, and if you have that, then there will be no argument of, oh, can we keep him to play until this game? Can we keep... No, no, no. You see, for me, this issue of the players going to the AFCON has been an argument I have had all through my career covering African football, going to 30 years. We've been having this conversation as far back as 1988. I remember Stephen Keshi as captain of Nigeria in 88 had to be flying between Brussels and Morocco to play games during an AFCON. He would play for Nigeria, rush back to Belgium to go and play games, rush back. So this, this problem is not new it's it's been ongoing, and the solution to it is very simple. But I, I think there's, there's there's other questions. I mean, I completely agree with you that that, you know, that those dates for release should just be fixed. It shouldn't be negotiable. But it seems to me both coaches have handled this quite badly. That you know, what does it say to to you know, from, a, from a Manchester United point of view? What does it say to, to Bayern dear that Ten Hag doesn't trust him enough to play him at all in the Carabao Cup? Doesn't trust him. To you know, he wants to reduce as far as possible the games he's going to play. And what does it say to Andoa for Cameroon that that yeah you, you can play the first game, but as soon as Anana can be bothered to get here, then, then you're out of the team. It, it, that seems a you know a terrible way to treat the reserve keepers, and, and just it's it, it's such a public admission that the coaches have no no faith in them. Is is an Andoa? I read somewhere a distant cousin of Anana. I mean, if that I like as a rule that if your keeper can't make it. One of your family has to step in <laughs> and do the and do the job. Um, Guys, let's not forget that Ondoa was in goal when Cameroon won the Afcon in twenty seventeen. So it's not exactly uh, an incompetent goalkeeper that we're talking about here. But, I mean, the other the odd thing is Cameroon have four goalkeepers in their squad, presumably because Anana is sort of like a half keeper, which is. It just feels like a waste of a player. Can we talk about Senegal, Solis? Um, uh, one AFCON in 2021, runners up in 2019. Um, really convincing win over Gambia. Yeah, hugely convincing. I think they've been the best um, team at this AFCON so far, not just in terms of the results, which, let's be fair to Gambia, Gambia played really well. Um, again, another game that was sort of defeated by the red card. And then, of course, Gambia had to sit back a little bit and offer very, very little on the break. But um, Senegal's performance was really complete. Um, tactically, the structure is there. They have good relationships in wide areas, really lovely triangles on both sides. Um, Lamin Kamara is a superstar and he's showing that potential already. You know, we thought it might take him a couple of years, but he's ready now if you're good enough. If you're good enough, you're old enough, right? So he's uh, really, he really took that game, really took that game by the scruff of the neck. And I think Senegal are just really solid. You can see watching this team that CC has put in a lot of thought into how the team is composed in terms of picking the right profiles, putting players in the best position to succeed. And it's it's a difficult um, ask for any team to get around this Senegal, this Senegal side, I think. Uh, what about Morocco, Asasu? Obviously, they had that brilliant World Cup um, and, you know, exceeded everyone's expectations. Does that, in a way, you know, when you're when you're successful, that makes it harder, right? Because expectations rise. Like, are they in a, a similar state now? Do you expect good things of them? It depends on the mentality with which they approach this Afcon. 
Morocco haven't won an AFCON since 1976 in Ethiopia. And when they won that AFCON, we didn't have uh, a tournament where you had a group stage and then knockout stages. You had group stages all the way to the end. So you had first uh, round of groupings, then a second round of groupings that would then determine who was champion. So it's been uh, a lifetime and then some since Morocco uh, have won the AFCON. The last time they came closest to winning the AFCON was in 2004 in Tunisia. And I was actually there. I covered the tournament and I actually spent time with the Moroccan team uh, that day. So um, I think the issue for me is to see whether they can just adjust. Because when the players, first of all, they are Moroccan by blood but European in terms of their football upbringing and temperament and culture. Uh, when they played at the World Cup in Qatar, I think it was almost like playing at home for them. So the ambience was totally different. Uh, the AFCON is a lot more robust physically. The conditions in Ivory Coast are really hot and humid. I mean, the humidity is a huge issue. I mean, even for me, uh, watching games in the stands, the humidity is, is, is atrocious. I was wilting. So I can imagine what it's going to be like for the players. So if they're able to deal with what it takes to play at an AFCON in terms of the robustness of the football and managing the conditions well, their talent will tell you that they should actually have a chance of doing well at this AFCON. But they have to show me that they actually do have that potential because in Cameroon, before the World Cup, they didn't do well, but they did well in Qatar. So let's see if they, they can prove us wrong this time. But I, I think there's an, an issue with their style of play, isn't there? That where they were so successful at the World Cup was, was sitting deep, striking on the break, defending well. In a couple of nations, they have to take the game to opponents. And I, I think they, they may struggle with that. Um, and then just on Senegal, I think the really impressive thing about that, we, we, we thought, or I certainly thought, that the, the last tournament, I, mean, I spoke to Sadio Mane before the tournament, and he was saying this is the last chance of this generation. But they've got a new generation coming through. So they've got yeah, Mondi and, and Koulibaly and, and Idrissa Gay and Mane of, of the, the old lot. But then they've got a really impressive young generation, you know, Pape Sarr, uh, Lamin Kamara, uh, Nicholas Jackson, Larry Ernie Kamara for bench, Miss Nyakite, Nyakate, sorry. Yeah, they, they, they have replenished. So, I mean, I know it was against 10 men, but I think Senegal's performance was by far the best we've seen so far. I mean, the, the, good, thing about, uh, the good thing about Senegal, Jonathan, is that I think their youth development system is perhaps the best on the continent. So they are producing players all the time. The only side of it that I'm not happy about is that all the players are going to France. They don't stay in Senegal Senegalese football is not being developed as a result of the talent. Yes, it helps the national team because if they go to Europe, they're exposed to better coaching, better facilities, to better tactical education. But it doesn't help the development of Senegalese football as a whole. But I guess for those who want to see Senegal win a uh, successive AFCON, that's not really relevant, is it? <laughs> Before the pod, uh, Asasu and Wilson were having a fascinating discussion about shuttle buses. And I'm not going to ask you to repeat that, <laughs> that, that, that conversation, but in terms of infrastructure, Asaso, and you've written about this um, and, uh, and you're there right now, how, how is it 
framing up at the moment, would you say? Uh, the infrastructure is there for the AFCON to be played. That's uh, at least a good thing. But is it really to the standard that I would like it to be? Uh, I would say no. And one of the things that I am greatly concerned about at the AFCON, and I have been concerned about this at other AFCONs, is the quality of the pitches. Um, as I say, the, the pitches are the cathedral of the sport. And if you want to have a good service, the cathedral needs to be in good order. Uh, uh, at the Olympic Stadium, the one at Ibingbe, where the, the opening game was played and where the final is going to be played, it's quite disturbing to see that after just two matches, the pitch is beginning to brown and it's, it's getting patchy. So if they don't do some serious remedial work on that pitch, it's going to turn into a potato farm by the final, and that's not going to be good. I also observed the pitch at the Hufuebwai Stadium, even though I couldn't go to the game. I saw it on television, and I could see that the, the integrity of the pitch wasn't holding up. You see clumps of grass and soil coming up all over the place, and that's not going to be good for for the football, because if the, if the pitches aren't good, we're not going to have good quality of football and then players will start getting scared. I mean, at previous AFCONs, I remember at the AFCON in 2017, uh, I think it was Baba Rahman of Ghana, he had a terrible injury at that AFCON because of the pitch and he had to leave the tournament and I think he was out for several months. And see, and these are the type of things that clubs are scared of because they don't want their players to come back cropped after an AFCON. I mean, in 2004, I remember uh, Bolton Wanderers were so concerned about JJ Okocha's conditioning that they sent their physiotherapist with him to the AFCON just to make sure that he was in good order. So, you know, these, these issues are so important. I mean, Yes, we can talk about the transport, although for me, I don't mind because I managed to get my own car because I just don't want the stress of having to deal with transport when I really don't have to. But we need to have things working. I mean, I'll tell you another story again. It's everyone sitting comfortably. <laughs> At the initial press conference before the start of the tournament, the one uh, which uh, Ms., uh, the CAF president, Patrice Mosepe, spoke, uh, the press conference was supposed to start at 2 p.m., okay? But it didn't start until almost 3 p.m. because the table he was supposed to use wasn't in good order <laughs> and the carpenters <laughs> were working on it for a good 50 minutes. And then you wonder to yourself, <laughs> come on, guys, you've had a couple of years to prepare for this AFCON and you can't even get the table ready in good time for the tournament? I mean, and, 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 and um, uh, Dr. Mosepe was quite pissed off, excuse my language, because during the, 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 the presser, he basically took over the moderation of the press conference himself. So the CAF media aide who was supposed to be picking us to uh, answer questions was just standing there for two and a half hours because I could see he was quite upset because he said he got to the venue at 1.30 for the press conference only to wait for an hour and a half more for it to start. So there you go. Yeah, I, I like carpenters working on the table. I mean, just, it's just a table, lads. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, in terms of number of fans that are going, I, we often hear this from Europe, Wilson, of, you know, other, the stadiums aren't full. And I sometimes think we can be guilty of 
A, not realising the size of Africa compared to, say, a Euros, right? And B, like the disposable income of lots of fans, right? To get across a massive continent and go to those games. Do you think Do you think sometimes we're guilty of viewing it through that lens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you, can't, you can't compare. Um, and travelling fans are almost nil, apart from the official fan groups who are paid for by the FAs or by the government. And so, you, you know, you'll regularly see you know, the Nigeria band with their, their trombones and everything. And it's great, but it's sort of two or three thousand of them who have who have not paid their own tickets. Except they're paid supporters. Uh, the idea that an average fan from I don't know from Namibia would be making the trip to Cote d'Ivoire, I think, is it just doesn't happen. From what I've seen, I mean, I, I'm judging this by watching on on TV. It, it seems the crowds are, are actually pretty good for this tournament, but uh, there certainly have been tournaments in the past where when the host isn't playing, the stadiums are completely empty. Whereas there appears to be sort of 10, 15, 20,000 for most games. And I, th- I think that's partly to do with the, the, the football culture of the country. So Cameroon was pretty good for that. Uh, Ghana was certainly good in, in 2008. Um, some other countries, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, that, that, that hasn't been the case outside the, 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 the capital. I don't know to what extent pricing is the issue. I mean, certainly in Gabon, they would sort of open the gates with you know, 15 minutes into the game, let people in for free. Uh, so that wasn't the pricing issue. And the thing I've always been told is it's it's a it's just a football culture issue that there is not the same sort of tradition of going to the ground that you'd have in Europe because so much football is is watched on TV whether at home or, or in a in a bar. Uh, Solace, you agree with that? Yeah, there's there's definitely. But the truth is, it's it took a while to get there. There there are, you know factors that led to that general sort of distaste for going to the stadium, which is you know stuff like security. Um, we saw the last Afcon, you know, loss of lives during uh, um, during one of the games, which was very unfortunate. So these these are the sorts of things that are the back of people's minds. And generally, when you talk about going to football, it's something you want to take a whole family. You know, want to go view the football. It's like a it's like a real day out. But if there's no guarantee of security, um, it makes that prospect a lot less palatable for most people. So yeah, there's there's that. There's other factors that have been discussed already, which is you know pricing of tickets and really just how untenable it is to travel within Africa. It's Africa is huge, and you know flight prices just don't make any sense when you you know compare relative distances here in Africa in other parts of the world. Distances compared to um, the pricing that you get is just it's ridiculous. And it's also like you've covered a lot of Afcons. Like, do you see it? Uh, like as a tournament, like its development over the years, how 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 would you, how have you seen? It? Do you think it's in a good place? Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, in terms of the fact that Africans take the Afcon very seriously, it is a staple diet of the African football calendar. It's a part of our football culture, and we would like it to stay every two years. This. Uh, malarkey of having an AFCON every four years. It doesn't work for Africa, I'm sorry. I mean, you can do that in Europe where you have a hugely successful Champions League, but the, the, the AFCON is the mainstay of African football, not the CAF Champions League. So you can't, you can only change the, the scheduling of the AFCON when club football in Africa is much more financially successful for, for CAF because the AFCON is its main source of income. Now, uh, where I have a huge issue with where the AFCON is at the moment is its size. 
from a football perspective, it is good to see that the 2014 format allows teams like Gambia, Comoros and Cape Verde to, to produce results that are showing that they are capable of competing against the bigger sides. But if you look at the 2014 AFCON from an economic point of view, it's so expensive to organize. And very few countries in Africa can singly host it. And even if you decide to go with the co-hosting route, that causes its own complications because then it means that CAF, like for instance, in 2027, we are having Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania co-host the tournament. And that's going to be the first time in the history of the African Cup of Nations that three countries will be staging the AFCON at the same time, which means that every country will have its own local organizing committee. CAF would have to deal with three governments in terms of the preparation for the AFCON instead of one. And I, I, I think that this is really not necessary. And so even though there is a footballing reason for the AFCON to be at a 2014 level, I still think that we need to go back to the 16-team format so that it is much easier to manage and to even reduce the time. Because when we had a 16-team AFCON, you could play the tournament in three weeks, okay? And at least, even though European clubs will continue to complain, I don't care, even if we made the AFCON one week, they would still complain. But... <laughs> but at least it was three weeks when it was 16 and even just over two weeks when it was 12. But when you have it uh, at a 24-team level for a whole month, that has its own problems. So I don't know if uh, the current leadership of CAF will have the courage to, to face the economic realities of, of keeping this 24-team AFCON. But so I'm not so confident that it will ever reduce in size, but the economic imperative to, to bring it back to the 16-team format is definitely there. I'm just thinking, um, you also said something about um, the AFCON being, you know, such a big deal for African football and how that, um, you know, we don't have the same situation as Europe where club football is so vibrant, but... My thing there is, isn't isn't there a bit of a chicken and egg thing there, which is that, okay, so if we stick with the way things are, the development of club football is an end in itself. It's not just a means. It's, okay, so um, what then is the incentive for CAF to actually build African club football if we keep saying that the AFCON is this huge thing that can't be messed with, can't be touched? Um, it just seems then that we are resigned to the status quo, which is that, Club football we will never really grow, will never be improved. It won't get better. So we might as well just stick with what we have now and, you know, beat that horse till it's dead. Now, look, here, here's the problem. If you, or if you have an economic model that is giving you a certain level of income, before you change it, you need to know that you can at least make the same amount of money or more with an alternative that you're going to bring in. I mean, I, personally, I would love the African Champions League to have a much bigger profile and make more money so that African football in Africa will develop. Because if the club game is not developing in Africa, it's a problem for the overall future of football on the continent. But the problem is that when you don't have the money coming in, you can't change the format. So it's for those who are responsible for governance to do this 
to look for partners, financial partners that they can attract to the Champions League so that we can actually change this format. All right, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three will do any other business. Hast du genug von Werbung, die deine Comedy-Podcast-Party zum Absturz bringt? Gute Nachrichten. Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash comedypodcasts, um keine neuen Folgen mehr zu verpassen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So tomorrow, look, we'll cover the FFP stories uh, with Everton and Nottingham Forest and Manchester City. Um, we've got a campaigner from uh, Reading Supporters Group uh, about their ownership. Uh, we'll do the FA Cup replays as well. But there was a question from uh, specifically for Wilson Adams saying, how furious was Wilson that the second part of this week's silent witness got postponed for Bristol City West Ham on BBC One? Uh, not at all, because I tend not to watch it live. I prefer to watch it as one block. So what I was very happy about was that last week uh, they released the, the Tuesday one in the morning so I could download oh, before I got on the flight. That is great good. news. Um, uh, Gary says, Hi, Max. After getting sacked by Roma, where does the panel think Jose Mourinho will spend the next three years before once again getting the sack? Yes, this is the news that Roma have sacked Jose Mourinho uh, with the club ninth in Serie A. Uh, they lost uh, 3-1 at Milan on Sunday uh, and went out of the Coppa Italia uh, last Wednesday against Lazio. Uh, there was footage of Mourinho in tears as he left the training ground. Is it bad of me, Solis, to think that that I don't know he he didn't mean them because because <laughs> that's Jose or like does everyone have a heart? I, I mean, he's always he's always come across as a very um, emotive, emotional person. So I want to I want to assume that he did mean it and he has forged something of a good relationship with the Roma faithful. So, yeah, um, I think the news of his sack came uh, as a surprise to many people, but it's sort of been leaning that way. In, in truth, he's not, his results have not really justified um, the club's outlay in terms of wage bill and even in terms of transfers. I mean, this is this is Syria we're talking about. It's not the Premier League. There's not a massive amount of cash flowing for most teams. So, um with the resources he has, definitely Roma should be doing a lot better than Knights. Um, so that's that's what you get with Mourinho. You, you are hiring a coach who you trust to get results regardless of whatever he has to work with. And if he's not doing that, then what really is the point of it? He could manage Tunisia, couldn't he? I mean, that seems like a perfect fit, doesn't Mach, he? Imagine in heaven. Or, or yeah. he can manage Nigeria, who he apparently recommend, yeah, recommended for Syria, right? <laughs> he, could come, he could come manage Nigeria. So. <laughs> Although it is true to say that he had a really good relationship with the fans and some of the fans came out and applauded him and then booed the players as they left training. Daniel De Rossi, uh, who uh, um, played over 600 times for Roma, has been appointed the new manager. Um, David Ornstein, Athletic, reporting that Jordan Henderson has reached an agreement with El Etifak to leave the Saudi Pro League uh, and join Ajax. Um, Wilson, thoughts? I wish he hadn't gone. I, I don't really think in terms of reputation there's any, any coming back. I guess in some ways, do you applaud him for recognising he wasn't happy and rather than just sort of soldiering on for reasons of pride, taking the financial hit? But I don't know, it sort of feels like a career in reverse. A career should be, you're a kid who comes through Ajax, you show promise, you join Liverpool, and when you're a bit old and knackered, you go to Sunderland. It shouldn't be the other way around. 
And it suggests to me that something something's quite wrong in football. Where he's the Benjamin Button of football. Yeah, exactly. That's he's he, he's he living a career right. backwards. <laughs> uh, finally, Rachel says, I know nothing is more boring than details of other people's dreams. So I'll keep my first ever Football Weekly dream brief. I was so excited to get invited to the Football Weekly New Year's Eve party at Max's house and have a blast <laughs> hanging out with all the usual panellists. Max fell asleep snoring on the couch well before midnight. Seems very accurate. Uh, lots of us went to the after party at Barry's house, which I was I was surprised to learn was in a medieval-themed apartment complex, complete with armoured knights in the stained-glass windows looking out over the rural, snowy fields outside. Uh, I mean, that that is... That is weirdly accurate, mm. except it's not knights. It's cardboard cutters of Fiona Bruce. <laughs> it's very true. Um, I would love it if Barry, you know, Barry decided to take up medieval reenactments. So I'm fully behind. I'm fully behind <laughs> making that a running thing. So a live show, that's what he has to do. Anyway, Rachel uh, in Los Osos in California says, looking forward to New Year 2025. And that's all we have time for. Thank you, chaps. Uh, I enjoyed that. We should do it again uh, before AFCON is up. Thank you, Asasi. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you're welcome. Anytime. Thank you, Solis. Yeah, a real pleasure. Uh, and thank you, Wilson. Cheers. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 